Okay, so hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of Book Cafe Podcast. Um, in today's episode, we will be talking about this book right here behind me entitled The Humanity of Muhammad, A Christian View. And uh, I'm extremely excited to have the author himself uh, in today's episode to talk about the book. But just before we begin, if you're watching this on YouTube, do please take a moment uh, to subscribe to the channel. It really helps us out. And uh, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, you know, do please uh, continue to support the show and continue to download because we're going to have a lot of great content coming up uh, very soon. So uh, let's get this uh, particular episode uh, on, uh, underway. So without further ado, let me first introduce the author himself, Professor Dr. Craig Considine. Hi, Craig. Uh, welcome to Book Cafe Podcast. Greetings. Thank you for having me. So thank you so much for um, uh, agreeing to talk to us on the show. You know, I've been a huge fan of yours for many years now, and this really is a pleasure to be able to talk to you directly. Now, um, Professor, we will, of course, get to talking about your book in a minute. But uh, before that, uh, for our viewers and listeners who may not have read the book yet and who might be discovering you for the very first time, you know, do please take this moment to tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Uh, specifically with regards to your uh, education background, your ethnic and cultural background, and in fact, anything at all that you'd like to share with us. Great. Omar, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure uh, to, to meet you face-to-face -face after many online exchanges, so thank you so much. So I, I suppose my journey um, really begins in the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm from Needham. And my father, uh, his ancestry, of course, my name, Considine, comes from Western Ireland uh, in a place called Lisden Varna, County Clare. And my mother, who grew up in Boston, is the, um, the grandchild of immigrants from Italy. <clears throat> so I often joke with, with folks, um, even though my dad wasn't particularly Catholic, as an Irish and Italian uh, American, I kind of had little choice but to fall into this category of of Catholic. But my upbringing was was very rich, um, proud Bostonians. Uh, we loved sports, uh, very much into especially Italian food culture uh, and everything that comes with that, with big families. And my dad always instilled in me a um, a pride for being being from Ireland and and what that meant. You know, we could have a whole podcast for something like that. The the um, the meaning and the and the strength of Irish identity. So I grew up going to public school, but I also went to Catholic school. So I was reared in the in the Catholic faith, mm -hmm. and the suburb that I grew up in in Needham was you know being from boston it's a pretty intellectual environment uh in general the education is quite strong but we didn't particularly have a lot of diversity uh we had multiple christian denominations you know we were obviously catholic uh we had two temples in town jewish temples which is pretty significant actually um you know a lot of other parts of the country in, in the united states you won't even see synagogues um so when 9/11 happened i was 15 and we had, and I, I guess I'm saying um, this on behalf of people like me who grew up in my town, like we really had little, if any, context to properly make sense of what had happened on that day. And it wasn't just the atrocious, um, inhumane act of killing innocent people, but it was also 
the fallout from the media. You know, this is a time early 2000s. The media is just getting going and becoming more and more powerful. So all these messages were being delivered to us in the media. And again, with little to no context to make sense of it. And I don't just mean like intellectual context through education. I also mean human to human encounters. We had no mosques in town. I think we may have had a couple of Muslims in my high school, and it was a pretty big high school. Uh, so I, I'm also a product of my my age. So I'm 37 now, but at the time of 2001, I was 15. When the invasion of Iraq happened, I was a freshman in college. And there was a lot of questions brewing at this time, not just about Islam, but also about the so-called Muslim world. So I became quite interested in the developments of my time, the happening of my time. And I decided to uh, quit basketball because I was a basketball player previously. And I decided to commit myself to scholarship. So I transferred to DC. I went to Washington and I enrolled at American University in, in DC with the intention of getting into some type of intelligence agency. Like I wanted to figure out why something like 9-11 happened. So to do that, I started taking courses on Islam and I was taking Arabic classes. And very quickly in the first Islam class I took, it was called World of Islam 101 with Professor Akbar Ahmed at American. And very quickly I had realized that the stuff that was in my head and in my heart uh, was not, let's say, reflective of reality, but I also sensed that it wasn't healthy, that I had kind of been, you know, not brainwashed per se, like I was never completely brainwashed, but I knew something was was up and I trusted Dr. Ahmed. I trusted what he was saying. And he was also emphasizing the importance of interfaith. So when I started this journey that, that I just explained, like it was about intelligence, it was about international relations and government and all this and then the interfaith realm came. And I said, this is it. This is the perfect solution, the perfect remedy for a lot of the division that we see in the world. So um, that was the foundation of my educational background. I then went on to pursue a master's degree at the University of London, Royal Holloway. Uh, that was a very transformative year for me. I had never been outside of the United States didn't have a passport, had to do all that stuff to actually study there. And for the first time in my life, Omar, I was the other, I was the American. Mm -hmm. And this is at a time of heightened anti-American sentiment. It was about 2008, 2008. So when I get to London, which is an ally of the United States, you would think a lot of people were just like, what is happening in your country? Like, what, what did you do? So that was quite interesting and informative. And then after that, I went to do my PhD in, in Ireland, Dublin, Ireland. And uh, I'm happy to talk more about that maybe later with, with uh, that book. But that's a very brief overview of my journey. You know, that's not necessarily my beliefs uh, per se. And of course, we change over time, you know, uh, but that is essentially the foundation of, of uh, where I'm at now. Absolutely. Well, uh, Professor, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, uh, one of the things I really liked about the book was, uh, um, you know, it's entitled The Humanity of Muhammad, but you did start the book by telling us about yourself and your background, you know, coming out of Boston and uh, joining American University 
and uh, and the and the and your and your professor, Dr. Akbar Ahmed. Um, he he said a line that really changed your worldview about Islam, which till that time you only had the media to look to you know to to tell you about Islam. But when you took that class, I believe you mentioned that he quoted a hadith that said, "The ink of a scholar is holier than the blood of a martyr," and that must have been uh, uh, it. Must have felt like an epiphany. Can you tell us a little bit more about? That first day, that first class that you had with uh, Dr. Akbar Ahmed. Absolutely, and and I'm glad you brought this up. So when I got to Dr. Ahmed, I was 19. I was a sophomore, uh, and I had only begun this journey of having interest in scholarship and in knowledge. As I said, I was a basketball player. I decided to completely shift and put all my energy into studying. So I was already on the journey of being fascinated by acquiring, you know, wisdom, if you want to call it that knowledge. And then I get to Dr. Ahmed and I'm thinking, again, the first class is going to be about Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. And he starts off by sharing multiple hadith on how Prophet Muhammad emphasized the importance of knowledge. So not only was I kind of rocked in my head, I said, wow, so he's he's connecting Islam to knowledge and Islam not to Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was doing that intellectually. Uh, and and that just that just really uh, that moved me. But I, I also became quite interested in how he approached the actual term knowledge. What is what is knowledge? Right. Uh it's not just the peer-reviewed journal articles and the books. It's what you can acquire in conversation and in dialogue with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, to me, like the combination of those two things was, could do wonders. And I was convinced quite early that this was part of the solution. Um, so it's a um, I, I'm very lucky as well. Let me let me explain here very lucky to have had Dr. Ahmed as my teacher and not someone who was on, let's say, a different wavelength, right? So someone who was looking more at security or terrorism, I could have easily gone down that road, but he emphasized interfaith. Right. And to me, that was just uh, not only interesting intellectually, but it also suited me as as a person because I, I i like to talk to people i like to engage i like to um spend time uh, with people learn from people grow with people create friendships with people so i'm lucky as we were saying before we started this the luck of the irish i guess applies <laughs> yes absolutely the luck of the irish and uh, obviously you know listening to you and having read uh the way you've credited dr akbar ahmed in the book you know I can only imagine if it was some other professor, you know, your destiny or your life may have yeah. been very different from what it is right now. So yes, we do have, uh, you know, Dr. Akbar Ahmed to thank for the role that he's played in your life. Okay, so Professor, uh, moving on to the book itself, you know, after that uh, amazing introduction, um, as I said that, you know, the book is entitled uh, The Humanity of Muhammad, the Christian View. And for our viewers and listeners who haven't had the chance of reading the book yet, can you tell us what the book is about? So it is a, a sociological analysis of Prophet Muhammad's life and legacy. Mm 
That's what it is in short. Mm -hmm. And the chapters are quite short. It's actually quite a short book as well. It's very concise. And I focus on several themes. And these are the sociological themes. Um, I look at how Prophet Muhammad lived his life in relation to religious pluralism, in relation to anti-racism, in relation to civic nation building, in relation to women's rights, in relation to knowledge, and this idea of the golden rule, mm -hmm. treat others how you wish to be treated. Right. So this, this is not a book, while it engages in theology and religious studies in general, it really looks at um, powerful moments in his life that shows us like this this human connection, this human this human touch. So it's not about the claims that he was making as a prophet. It's about how he treated people. So I dive into specific relationships that he had with people, whether it's an individual or a community. So I look at, for example, in anti-racism, I look at the relationship that he had with Bilal ibn Rabbah. In the religious pluralism, I look at the relationship that he built with the Christians of Nadron. So really looking at his life as a way to create, uh, mm -hmm. uh, these are historical stories, of course, but to communicate them in a, a contemporary light, a sociological light, away from religious dogma mm -hmm. and some of these you know, massive uh, theological claims that people can make. Uh, so it's a, it's an accessible book. I would say that uh, I think even like a high school or you know um, secondary degree reader would be able to uh, to digest. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the book doesn't just focus on Muhammad. Of course, it looks at his legacy. So how have people taken what he had given? Um, through his example, but also through his teachings, and how did they move through into future generations? So basically, how did future Muslims and Christians, for that matter, reflect what and how he had lived in his life? Yeah. Uh, so I look at things like, you know, I look at the legacy of, um, for example, Al-Andalus, uh, this, uh, you know, multiple century long rule in western europe a lot of people always forget that islam has largely always been part of europe right. uh, but looking at these moments where christians and muslims are coming together emphasizing knowledge they're not putting identity as the marker of human interaction it's about progress it's about making this world a better place and it just so happened that there was a diverse group of people there and they made it work. And I think that's what Muhammad would have wanted, right? Just progress, human human progress. Let's maximize our potential. I mean, I think that he, he was a man of excellence in every life, you know? I mean, most Muslims would certainly agree with that. But he, he was good at everything. He was an excellent person. And I think that standard is um, needs to be kept high. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I and I couldn't agree more. And it's uh, it's nice that you mentioned Al Andalus or Andalusia as we know it in history. And I think that uh, you know a lot of the times uh, the, that particular uh, empire or civilization only lasted for about seven hundred years, and hence the reason why it probably gets forgotten when it comes to Islamic history. And uh, but it is it is uh, definitely one of my favorite times in history. You know that I absolutely love that. A particular time period and, uh, and of course 
uh, one can't forget that the greatest Jewish philosopher of the time, uh, Rabbi Maimonides, was a product of Andalusian culture. And of course, we, we will definitely touch on that uh, as we go forward with this episode. But uh, circling back, Professor, to what you mentioned um, right at the beginning of uh, the answer to this question, uh, you mentioned religious pluralism, and you also compared it with uh, religious tolerance in the book, right? So for our viewers and listeners uh, you know, um, who may not know the distinction between religious tolerance and religious pluralism, uh, would you be able to help us define these two terms? What is meant by these two particular terms? Sure. So I take my lead from Diana Eck, Professor Eck at Harvard University, the Harvard Pluralism Project. And Professor Eck actually maybe, uh, I don't know if Professor Eck was deliberately doing this, but she put a sociological spin on the term pluralism. And I think before she established this principle, which I'll explain in a second. Pluralism, I think, was generally regarded as this idea that like all religions are equal. Like there's a hundred religions in the world and like they're equally valid. It's like a very secular way of looking at religion. Like everything is just uh, equal. Right. And that can put off, that can be very, um, that can put pe people off because it makes them kind of sacrifice their religion. Like every everything has to be equal. So Professor Eck is not saying that, and I like that. Uh, Professor Eck is saying that religious pluralism is more something that we as humans can operationalize with our energy and our bodies. Mm -hmm. So Eck is saying that religious pluralism is the energetic engagement with religious diversity. That is like the primary component, I think, of Professor X definition. So it's energetic engagement. Now, energetic engagement, if you juxtapose that to tolerance, they're two totally different things. Now, to have that energetic engagement, you have to have tolerance. But if you only have tolerance, then what is actually moving forward? Are we moving forward, actually? Because tolerance is very standoffish. Right, like Omar, if I if I tolerate something that you do in your life, or you tolerate something I do, and you're not okay with it, and it's like you know, like there's like a little disconnect, but we just yeah, we just we just kind of tolerate it. I mean, that's one human example. But as religious communities, if we merely tolerate each other, we're actually having no type of cross cultural communication. So everyone under the banner of tolerance is just allowed to exist as they as they do with no interaction. And that can lead to problems that can lead to stereotypes. And then let's say something happens in the world, the media picks it up. All of a sudden, let's say a Jewish community is is in the news. If no one knows anything about their Jewish neighbors because of this tolerance that has a, that established like a status quo, you could have negative views of those people. But if you know these people, like actually know these people, right? They're your neighbors. They're, they don't just live next to you. They're your neighbors. Different story. You engage with them. You have conversations with them. This can lead, in theory, to stronger social relations, tighter social harmony, uh, general sense of better well-being. Uh, so I, in short what we're talking about with pluralism is 
just moving beyond this, like, let's just accept people in the name of diversity. It's more of like, what do we do with this diversity? Let's actually mix, let's mingle, let's get to know one another. And that's what Muhammad did. I mean, I can speak about, I can speak about that for eons. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, with, yes, and absolutely. And in, in keeping with a religious pluralism, Professor, I think that you gave uh, two amazing examples in the book, which I think a lot of Muslims, uh, the average Muslim may not even be very aware of unless they've really studied history. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm saying that as an avid student of history that a lot of uh, people may or may not know about it. But let's touch on those uh, two points. Um, in the book, you gave the example of the first Hijra. Uh, where the Muslims of uh, you know, Mecca at the time who were under persecution were sent to a neighboring country. And the second example you gave of the Prophet's advocacy for religious pluralism was when he invited the Christians of Najran to come and visit him in his, uh, in his uh, abode in Medina. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more, Professor, about the first Hijra in 615 CE and the delegation from Najran that visited him in the year 631 CE. You please uh, go ahead. Sure. So, yeah, 615, uh, this is five years after um, the revelations began. Muhammad goes public in 613 with the revelations. So they were underground for approximately three years. Yeah. After two years, um, Muhammad is so successful, really, uh, in bringing people into the boat that the power players in Meccan society, who happened to be his really his own family, his own clan and tribe, the Hashem and Quraysh, they become intimidated by him, right? He's a, he's a threat to their power. So what do they do? They stir things up and they make sure that some of his community members are feeling that oppression and that discrimination. So Muhammad makes a decision knowing full well that his community is not doing well, and that his community might not even survive. So he tells them, and this is like miraculous. I, this is still, it, this story still blows my mind. So he tells a group of his closest people to travel from Mecca to the coast, the Arabian, the coast of the Arabian Peninsula, get on a boat across the Red Sea and, and land in a Christian kingdom where they would be protected so that's a huge leap of faith like not only making the physical journey right they had they had a long journey and i i i assume that the companions were not familiar with abyssinia i don't maybe some of them had gone previously but i'm i'm not sure uh so yeah that's incredible the fact that muhammad had faith and confidence in the christian king to take care of them and i'll speak about that in a second, but also the companions were, they believed so much in Muhammad and they trusted him so much that they said, okay, this is a good idea. Now, thankfully, the story, according to the sources, is a good one. Uh, King Ibn Abjar had not only, in short, again, I'm, we, could, we could spend an hour just talking about this, this one uh, scene in, in King Ibn Abjar's court. Uh, but in short, he uh, gave the early Muslim community the opportunity to build a bridge. So they were sharing verses of the Quran uh, to King Ibn Abjar, so making that connection between Christians and Muslims. But 
as we know in the historical sources as well, the Quraysh are following the Muslims to uh, Aksum, the capital of Abyssinia. And the goal in doing so was basically to convince the Christian king to hand over the Muslims back to the Quraysh. The, the Quraysh would basically put them on that boat, cross the Red Sea, bring them back to Mecca, either imprisoned or put to death, probably one of the two. Uh, and King Ibn Abjar said, absolutely not. Uh, he said, not going to do it. Uh, you know, he said, even for a mountain of gold, I wouldn't bring these people. I wouldn't give these people up to you. Uh, so that is a form of pluralism, right? It is like, so King Ibn Abjar was tolerant to begin with, to allow them to even be there, tolerant to allow them to speak openly about the Quran and what it says. So that's tolerant in itself, but he actively defended them. So he put his own empire and his nation's well-being on the line for a stranger community. That's basically what it was. So in other works that I've developed, I talk about the concept of allyship and how the Christians were very strong allies, at least in Abyssinia, to the early Muslim community. Now, the Christians of Nadran happens quite uh, a good deal later, you know, 15, 16 years later. Uh, the situation is much different. The early Ummah, led by Prophet Muhammad, was um, establish, establishing itself as not only a kind of domestic around Medina, Mecca, a uh, ruler in this area, but more of like a regional player. I think Muhammad probably saw the writing on the wall and figuring that they were going to be successful and they were going to be a nation. So he was reaching out to all the regional leaders, and many of them were Christian. This is another thing that people often forget about Muhammad's life. Like there was a lot, not only a lot of Christians around, but there was a lot of Christian diversity around because obviously Christianity is not a monolith. So the Christians of Najran are coming from southern, modern day southern Saudi Arabia, uh, northern Yemen. And I write in a different book, Omar, which I think you've read as well, people of the book, Prophet Muhammad's Encounters with Christians. The Christians of Najran were very likely, yeah, there you go, <laughs> very likely Trinitarians, right? So like there, there's often this, um, this, this thing that I see on social media where uh, critics of my work will be like, well, you know, Prophet Muhammad only wanted to work with like Unitarian Christians or like only the Christians that would reject the Trinity uh, as a way of kind of safeguarding the pure monotheism of, of Islam. But I've argued elsewhere that no, he was engaging with Christians across the board. So the Christians of Nadran, Trinitarians, I think, are welcomed by Muhammad. Muhammad sends him a letter. Again, he's growing his empire and uh, they arrive to Medina, to Masjid al-Nabawi, right? The, the center, the, the very heart of Islam at the time. Uh, and there are several highlights here. Number one, actually, there's three. The first and perhaps the most important is that it lasted for three days, which means that they, they had to have at least a certain degree of not only tolerance, but also some general amicability, if I could use that term, right? So like there, there had to be some type of good environment, good charm involved. So that was a, that's a good sign. We also know via early Islamic sources 
that the early Ummah, the Muslims, and the Christians of Nadran had engaged in what is imaginably like a pretty significant and in-depth conversation on Christology, the nature of Jesus, Christ. And the sources say that the Christians spoke openly, right? So again, you have this tolerance. People are able to speak openly. That's great. I mean, that's the least, that's the least we can do, right? But Muhammad was also like engaging with them, like, you know, explain to me the Trinity. Like, what do you mean? Maybe saying something like, I don't totally understand how it's pure monotheism. So they were they were grappling. They were going back and forth. And imagine that it's civil, right? It's like a civil uh, discourse. Uh, and they agreed to disagree, essentially. That's civility. That's so That's so critically important. And he knew that. But the third point here is that the Christians of Nadran were allowed to pray inside the masjid, Masjid al-Nabawi, which is still, even to this day, if you think about it, pretty extraordinary. Yeah. You know, not only for Muslims to allow Christians to pray, but for Christians to allow Muslims to pray in their church. Right. I mean, it's a it's a it's a big deal. And Muhammad, in doing in doing this, he was doing multiple things. I think one was showing that um you know, these are our, our Christ, Christian brothers in, in faith and in spirit. I mean, they're very close to Islam and Christianity. But I think more importantly, Muhammad was trying to leave a lesson for his people, his followers. And that lesson was that you should treat people with the golden rule, how they want to be treated. Right. Uh, and that you should you should always be hospitable. Because these Christians of Nadran were going to go pray outside, and that would have been messy. You know, it would have been a hassle. It's a foreign land; they don't know they don't know what the weather might be, or something like that. And Muhammad says, "Like you're already here; you're in a place of God. Just you can have this space and and do it." Correct. So I think that's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just profound. I mean, the 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 way that the Prophet had treated the Christian delegation in 631, and the fact that he had so much faith in the Abyssinian king to be able to send his followers there in the first Hijra in 615 CE. In fact, a lot of, uh, you know, lay Muslims, I would say that uh, probably aren't as aware of the first Hijra as they are with the second one from from 622 when the calendar dates. And so, yeah, yeah. I really wanted to make it, make it a point to highlight just these two events just to show exactly how much appreciation there was between these two religious communities at the time. And if uh, memory serves me right, Professor, even after um, after the death of the Prophet, when a lot of when the whole of Arabia came under Muslim administration, as did Persia, as did North Africa and, and Spain, eventually, um, I can recall that uh, there was so much respect that the Muslims had for the Christian Kingdom of Abyssinia that they never once uh, entertained any thoughts of trying to go over there and try and administer it or impose themselves on it. So that really does show exactly how much uh, mutual respect there was. So um, uh, staying with uh, Abyssinia, Professor, and uh, uh, let's talk about uh, one of uh, the Prophet's uh, intimate companions. And uh, he, his name is obviously uh, Bilal, the first Muezzin, or the one who gave the call to prayer. And of course, it's speculated that he pro most probably came from Abyssinia, which is now modern-day Ethiopia. and. Uh, at the time, Arabian society was probably quite racist, but uh, but you made it a point in the book to highlight the Prophet's stance 
uh, against racism. You, you call it anti-racism as opposed to being a non-racist. Would you be able to try and um, you know, define these two terms? What you mean by somebody who is a non-racist versus somebody who is an anti-racist? Sure. So it's quite similar in many ways to the tolerance versus pluralism thing. So tolerance is a good thing, but it's standoffish. It doesn't ask you or require you to do anything except uh, a general kind of acceptance or status quo. And non-racism is quite similar. It's a good thing. To be a non-racist is a good thing probably want more of those type of people in the world. But it's also just that. It's just someone who holds these kind of uh, these views, which are good, egalitarian, democratic, however you might want to put it. But with pluralism, it's energetic. With anti anti-racism versus non-racism, again, it's it's energetic. That word anti suggests maybe that someone is working towards uh combating something right it takes effort um you know to to engage uh, to alleviate that social problem so muhammad was both but again striving more towards the how can we actually uh push back against racism rather than just condemn it there's two different things like you can condemn it with words or actually try to liberate people and that's what he did with Bilal. He literally did it. Uh, he worked to purchase Bilal's freedom. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, and I'm not, I'm not even sure, Omar, you might know better than me. I'm not even sure if I wrote this in the book, but I often say this now in talks, like the best thing that Muhammad did for Bilal was not just merely freeing him, ending the the shackles on his wrists you know cutting those off but muhammad worked to create a society and a community mm -hmm. that allowed someone like bilal to maximize his potential mm -hmm. yeah. the differences between those two levels is huge right and i'll give you an example even from the american perspective like civil war right so civil war ends in 1865 right um the slaves are already free, but now they're like really free, right? right? Within a larger country. And then you see reconstruction happen, mm -hmm. right? So like they're, okay, they're they're free, but all these things are put into place to keep them down. Right. So Muhammad had an understanding for like the bigger, the bigger picture that it's not just enough to say, uh, you know, let's get this person out of a bad situation instead he's saying yes let's get them out of a bad situation but let's actually make sure that they're moving forward and that they're being successful and that they can maximize their potential right. so that's why he's a great leader because mm -hmm. it's not just ending something like um you know slavery yeah correct. or just condemning it he he's allowing people to maximize their potential and that's so important absolutely and i, and I think that you've really um uh, you made a very wonderful comparison here, Professor, because, you know, as you rightly said that this American Civil War ended in 1865, but it still took another hundred years and the political activism of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X to really try and get uh, full civil rights for people of color in the U.S. And, uh, and, and that's, and with regards to the Prophet and Bilal, uh, you know, he, 
he didn't have he didn't wait for Bilal's uh, people to wait another hundred years to get full rights. Uh, you know, he did it instantly and helped him grow. And I think that's a really interesting comparison that you've made. So, um, you know, in keeping with that, Professor, um, uh, one of the most interesting comparisons you've made in the book is uh, how you've uh, made, you know, the, the comparison between Islamic um, culture and American uh, culture. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the civil, uh, you know, not the civil rights, the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. And you've you've taken American values and you've juxtaposed it with Islamic values. And you've also alluded to the fact that, you know, somebody like George Washington and Ben Franklin would have definitely endorsed a lot of things that uh, the Prophet Muhammad did. Would you be able to just touch up a little bit upon that? You know, uh, George Washington, Ben Franklin, and the Prophet Muhammad, and how you've managed to link yeah. them together. <clears throat> so a shout out and thanks here to Dr. Ahmed, again, uh, having a good teacher, uh, alerting me to the, the strength of a pluralist vision of America. Right. So America is going to mean something different to everyone. But like there might be kind of broad spectrums that we can clump people into. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Ahmed was saying that um, America is at its best when it has a pluralist vision. Mm -hmm. So you read something like the Declaration of Independence, like we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men, human beings are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that is very neutral. Anyone can get into that. And that, in addition to a lot of other things like the Constitution, like this enables the universe, the world, to find themselves in America. And when this country is at its best, it's that. Now, I would say the same with Islamic civilization, if I could throw that out there, as a whole, it has a pluralist vision. Right. And my work is literally showing Muhammad's pluralist vision, you know, in in engaging in the constitution of Medina. Uh, I mean, the Quran itself is a is a universal book, talking about the um, the people of the book and the reverence that it has for for Christians and Jews. So that alone, like that kind of language in the Declaration of Independence matches up, I think, quite well with base, really foundational, basic Islamic uh, values of of, uh, of equality, of justice, but also of um, not necessarily compassion, but like egalitarian, like any anyone can be brought in, you know, like even the Constitution of Medina, 622, uh, like how would a scholar interpret the Ummah through the Constitution of Medina? Is the Ummah only Muslim, or is the Ummah a nation multicultural, multi-religious? So those—that's a big picture thing there. Like, we can make as scholars, we can make the comparison that there's a pluralist vision of America and that there's a pluralist vision of Islam. However. You could also focus on other models too, right? So America has a darker side. Islam, Islamic civilization can have a, a darker side. But I guess the question is like, why why would we stress too much emphasis on the, those categories of national identity that divide us 
rather than looking at the pl the more pluralist vision that encourages people to get to know one another. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. Now, with the founding fathers, fascinating group of people, arguably one of the most you know extraordinary generations uh, in, in quite some time. So they were products of the Enlightenment. They were for freedom of religion, rationality, uh, small government, um, power to the people, voting, human rights. Uh, now, again, we could spend a whole session on problematizing slavery, which should be problematized, and other anti-immigration waves that the United States has had throughout history. But there is plenty of information, primary sourced information, writings from Washington, writings from Franklin, writings from Jefferson, mm -hmm. that actually show and demonstrate that they imagined Muslims to be part of America down the road. Mm -hmm. So that term imagined was developed by Denise Spellberg, professor at University of uh, uh, Texas in Austin, mm -hmm. Texas, the capital, which isn't you know, four hours, it's about four hours from Houston. So Professor Spellberg is saying that they imagined Muslims as future uh, citizens, and that makes sense. So someone like uh, Franklin, a man of the world, brilliant mind, diplomat, you know, extraordinaire, um, astronomer, scientist, inventor. There's one quote that he that is attributed to him, and it's actually before the revolution started. And he was living in Philadelphia at the time. Now, by the way, Franklin is from where I'm from, Boston, but he fled Boston because they were they were too puritanical. It was the Puritans. So these are like your you know your your modern day fundamentalists, your your Wahhabi Salafi type type <laughs> people, like very very rigid. Very so. Ben Franklin said, "I'm out. I'm I'm getting out of here." Goes to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Philadelphia was um, part of Pennsylvania. William Penn, who was the, the founder of the state of Pennsylvania, was all for religious tolerance. Mm -hmm. So Franklin is like, "This place is great. There's all these different religions here." Uh, we can we can all make sense of this. We can all be American. Now, the quote I was saying that's attributed to him, he said something like this. If the Mufti, actually, he literally said this. If the Mufti of Constantinople, those are the literal, word, literal words, which is modern day Istanbul. If that Mufti wanted to come to Philadelphia to preach, not to, not to speak politically or diplomatically, but to actually preach his religion, which is basically to get you to convert. And proselytize. Franklin was saying they should be able to do that in this city, and he was referring explicitly to a hall. They were he was trying to fundraise for like a secular hall, and he was like he was dealing with opposition. People were like, "Well, it should only be a Christian hall, so we can welcome Christian denominations." Franklin was saying Hindus, Buddhists, whoever, Muslims, bring them, bring them over. Now Washington is. Uh, an interesting case because Washington, and I've written about this, it wasn't in the humanity of Muhammad, but Washington had a relationship, a good, very good friendship with someone named Sambo Anderson. Mm -hmm. And I've written a Huffington Post article about this. Have you seen this, Omar? Have uh, you seen my I, work on on this? 
Uh, no, I have, have not, but I would love to know a bit more about yeah, it. Yeah, so so Sambo was was George Washington's like right hand man. He was enslaved, but he he had uh, he was basically a free man, but mm -hmm. categorically a slave. Okay, and uh, I wrote this article, which I think helped to prove that Sambo was either a Muslim mm -hmm. or a generation removed from people who were Muslim. And he was part of the Hausa tribe in West Africa, in modern-day West Africa. And I talk about um, how he might have a Muslim identity. Right. Uh, so the Founding Fathers are yeah. really, really, really extraordinary. Remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. You know, had, had their faults. Um, I think they, if I can be blunt, I think they realized that they wouldn't be able to create the country that they wanted to create um if the slavery issue was disbanded and mm -hmm. they they made a very unfortunate you know in in hindsight uh mm -hmm. i wouldn't say unfortunate but like they they made the decision to keep this institution around for the sake of creating a country and of course mm -hmm. america dealt with that and still is dealing with that Correct, correct, absolutely. Well, uh, Professor, thank you so much for that comparison. And obviously, uh, when it comes to American politicians and founding, you know, founding fathers, Ben Franklin is definitely my favorite because he was such a politician. Yeah. And uh, you know, what a remarkable man. And I, I, do, I actually did read a little bit of his biography, but I was very familiar with him for most of my life. So Walter Isaacson wrote a phenomenal yes. biography on you know, American life. I think you have it there, right? Okay. I think I have it at home. I have this one uh, by Morgan, okay, Edmund oh. Morgan. But I have the Isaacs, uh, Isaacson one at home. Oh, it's it's a fabulous little little, uh, little secret uh, guests here. Uh, Wisdom of Thomas Thomas, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. These all happen to just be here. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, uh, Professor, I I don't think you mentioned Thomas Jefferson in the book, but I believe that he also owned a copy of the Quran, and he was actually the one who said that he can definitely see Muslims as American citizens at some point. Is that correct? Would that be right? That is. Uh, yep. So there's a statue at the University of Virginia, which is the university that he founded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Right. And there's a statue of him holding a tablet of religious freedom. And on that tablet is written uh, God in all these different languages. Allah's one. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson, a couple of big things with him. Uh, he did own the Quran. It was written by George Sale in 1731. Interesting analysis from other scholars coming out about that actual uh, interpretation. It's an actual translation, and they're they're saying you know Sale may have been letting his anti-Muslim kind of sentiment seep in. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know Jefferson got a translation of the Quran, but that was the one that he got. Now, this, this Quran, interestingly, is housed in the Library of Congress in Washington. Right. And in 2000 and maybe five or six, mm -hmm. uh, Representative Keith Ellison from uh, Minnesota in the United States took his oath of allegiance on, to the Constitution on, on, the, on the Jefferson on the Quran. front. Right? Yeah. Okay, awesome. That's well, right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's that's amazing. Well, uh, Professor, um, we are actually coming to the last quarter of our episode here. So, with your permission, uh, I'm going to confess uh, one thing, and that is that uh, before we started the episode, I actually solicited a couple of questions from other people, uh, just to bring some more diversity uh, to the discussion, and it wasn't a part of 
the list that I had shared with you earlier. So with your permission, I would like to read out a guest question for you. And uh, would you like to take a guess as to who it's from? Oh, wow. I have no idea. Right. So, <laughs> Tell so, me. I, well, I hope this uh, will come as a surprise. It's none other than Dr. Akbar Ahmed himself, your mentor and your professor. Wow. And, uh, we got in touch oh, with him God. before the episode, and he was really nice enough to send in a question. And uh, admittedly, uh, I, I have to make another confession. When you put up his uh, tweet on Twitter, that is when I made the connection between Dr. Akbar Ahmed and the person I used to see on CNN and the BBC right after 9-11 as the face of the moderate Muslim, as the scholarly face of Islam. So I had no idea until you know just like two weeks back when you happened to see Yeah tweet and yeah and uh he's amazing yeah he's an amazing man yes absolutely he and, is. Uh, absolutely and uh, okay so let uh, so with your permission let me just read out the question that dr akbar had sent and uh, i'm just uh, reading it verbatim uh dear craig as your former professor i am so proud of what you have achieved and how much you have achieved you have become a true bridge between different world cultures my question to you is have you personally presented your book to the Honorable Pope in Rome? As he is one of the greatest spiritual leaders of our time, I am sure he will be delighted to know that there are young warriors for peace in our world, especially with your American and Irish-Italian background. I will continue to bask in your glory. Uh, yours truly, Dr. Akbar Ahmed. So there wow. you go. <laughs> That's amazing. That made my day. That was awesome. Um, a couple things here. When Pope Francis became Pope, Dr. Ahmed and I wrote an op-ed uh, for the Washington Post. Uh, uh, and, and Dr. Ahmed just reiterated my faith in Pope Francis because Pope Francis was talking about really what Dr. Ahmed has always talked about. Mm -hmm. In light of this interfaith realm, Pope Francis used the term culture of encounter, you know, and like that's what Dr. Ahmed gave me. He didn't teach it to me. He gave it to me. He brought me around my own country for a year and he opened, you know, people opened doors for him, but he was opening doors for me. So everyone was opening doors for each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to encounter humanity. And that to me was... Um, just incredible. So I knew Dr. Ahmed was a big fan of Pope Francis right when Pope Francis came in. And then Pope Francis gave me something that I had never had before, which is like a, a completely new way of being Catholic. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily about doctrine or dogma. It was about the culture of encounter, how you live, how you treat people. So Pope Francis gave me a different identity in being a proud Catholic. Dr. Ahmed earlier gave me the, the scholarly hat, the mm -hmm. knowledge. Now, I mean, I'm eternally grateful to Dr. Ahmed. Uh, now with Pope Francis, people of the book, Omar, that book that you have right there is dedicated to Pope Francis. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talk about Pope Francis in the introduction. I have yet to meet Pope Francis. Uh, I do not believe he has a copy of the book. However, 
when I was recently in Abu Dhabi at the Abrahamic family house, I met his former secretary who inaugurated the St. Francis Church at the Abrahamic family house. And we exchanged um, we exchanged information and the, the the former secretary was basically like, yeah, send send the book. But it's one of those things like you you don't really take it seriously. Like the Pope isn't going to get my book, right? <laughs> like that's what I'm thinking. Like why it's going to cost me 30 bucks to send it and it's probably never going to get there. But um, I hope to God I can meet Pope Francis, honestly. Like I'm concerned that he might be the only Pope in my life that would even want to meet with me. <laughs> because <laughs> we have we have so much in common and who knows what's going to happen with the next pope i mean it could be someone totally different you know mm-hmm. but uh these are these are my role models i mean these these are my role models dr ahmed pope francis uh and and so many other people and the common theme behind all of these role models is is it's not what they it's not really what they believe in terms of like traditional religious belief, it's not that. It's it's really like how you conduct yourself, how you live, uh, what you hope to get out of life, um, how you treat others. I mean, that's that's what it's all about for me. Absolutely, and uh, and we will hope that if His Eminence uh, Pope Francis is watching, that uh, you know uh, he will have some of his people, you know. Um, reach out to you for a change and, and try and get the book. And I have to just uh, confess my own admiration for Pope Francis because I, uh, you know, we've seen him for the last 10 years. And I think that he, re- whatever he says really resonates with the Muslim world as well. And he could not have picked a better regal name because obviously he, he's named yes. after St. Francis of Assisi, who, uh, you know, who was such a, rena- uh, such a revered figure in Catholicism. And of course, I've had a lot of friends who've also uh, you know, taken to the Franciscan way of life, and so it's really great to uh, you know to have more about to know more about the Pope. Okay, so uh, Professor, uh, you know, I know that we're just about coming to, to the, towards the end of the episode, but what I'll do is I'll just ask you just two or three more questions, and please feel free to uh, answer it as briefly as you'd like. Uh, we, we, I do have one more guest question, and the second guest question that I have for you is from Mr. Julian Bond who was actually oh, yeah. the people uh, who made, you know, who, who did a review of your book. And Julian is actually an old friend of mine. We've been friends for the last 12 to 13 years. We've wow. collaborated a lot. You know, he was the ex-director. Small of world. The, small world, yeah. He was wow. the ex-director of the Christian Muslim uh, Forum in the UK. And we've kept in touch for the last 10, 12 years. And so the question that Julian Bond has for you is, um, dear Craig, I have two questions. Firstly, what would Muhammad and Jesus say to each other if they met? And secondly, where is my copy of the book? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the, the first one, what would they say? I think their first reaction would be a big embrace. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a very warm, cordial kind of thumbs up. And then I think maybe 10, 15 minutes into it, they might kind of go like this a little bit and be like, what what have our people done? What have our people done? What are, what are they doing? I think they'd be concerned. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're obviously, they'd be hopeful, right? They wouldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't lose hope. Hope is a divine element. It, it comes from outside of ourselves. So like they wouldn't not have hope. 
but I think they they would be concerned at the state of things at a at a very big picture. Now Julian's book, oh my God, I feel like I did I I, I think I never sent it. I must have never sent it to him, which is terrible. <laughs> I feel I feel horrible because the book came out years ago, right. and like I, honest, honestly, I tell people. I have a very small group of people around me helping me and I tell them to do things. And um, this is very unfortunate. I feel horrible. Tell Julian, um, if you, if you contact him before I do, mm-hmm. we need to get his address. <laughs> I need to send him that book. I'm going to send him like probably four other books too, <laughs> to make, to make up for it. I apologize. Oh, no, not a problem. I'm sure Julian won't mind because he, you know, I think he's one of, he's got such a big heart and he's one of the nicest human beings I've met. And I really take my hat off to him for all the interfaith work that he has done over the years. And, uh, you know, you know, just, uh, you know, in order to get on to his good side, if in, in case he's a bit uh, cross about this, um, you know how a lot of people mix up the English and the Irish, you know, people tend to make a bigger mistake with the English and the Welsh, and he's a very proud Welshman. So maybe that's the way to oh, is he? I didn't I didn't know that well I get I get he's joking I know he's right. I know he's, he's joking, joking but he's not it's that <laughs> it's that little it's that little I I can see the Welsh and the Irish humor being kind of right a little a little bit similar mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah I know I know what he's saying <laughs> oh, okay all right so professor uh very quickly um I'm going to ask you another question which is actually a staple question um you know that we have on the show here and the question to you, uh, you know, one of our staple questions for the show, because we're after all a podcast about books, is if you could select a book that you feel that every, let's say, young person should read at least once in their lifetime, it doesn't have to be related mm. to your field of study, but you know, if you could select a book that you feel that everybody should read at least once in their life, what would be that book that you would select? Wow. That is a monstrous, monstrous question. So one book, it can only be one book. Uh, well, you can have two or three, you know, whatever you feel like, no problem. I, I have to admit that uh, uh, every one of my guests so far have told me how hard this question is, but I'm really hoping- Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, it's, it's a really hard I mean, I, I, would, I would say, if I had to choose one, for, from my perspective, it would be the Bible. Mm-hmm. But before that person started reading, I would want to sit down with that person and say, this is why I think you should read this. Mm-hmm. And I would explain to them, I would give them a frame of reference before they entered into that. Because mm-hmm. I do think you can explore knowledge through the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt. But I also think that you can do it through other texts, other sacred texts as well right so like I, I don't think it's cut off i don't think it's uh, exclusionary um but that's what i would say i would say the bible um lots of lessons it's a long read <laughs> you better dedicate a couple of, of empty weeks yeah. uh and some boring there's some boring stuff in there there's a lot of history but um, would that be the what, rcb uh, the roman catholic version by any chance the the version yes so the so the one I have is the one I was given when I was eight. It's the the Good News Bible. Good News Bible, okay. Yeah, I don't I don't even know if it's still in print, but this thing is like falling apart. It's, mm-hmm. it's so old, but it's it's a uh, so that that's what I would say. But uh, yeah, 
you know, I, I, it's important, the context that I put it in, you know, like I'm not telling someone to read the Bible because they need to believe in Jesus or else they're going to hell. Like, no way. You know that I would never say something like that. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And that's that's what I would say. Now, if I could drop maybe two or three more sure, really sure. good books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Please go ahead. Yeah. Oh, wow. 1984. Mm, George Orwell. By George, by George Orwell. Mm. Um. There is a book called The Words That Lincoln Lived By. I don't know who it was. It was a collection of Lincoln's quotes. Um, one of the books, Omar, that I actually disagree with the most had a huge impact on me, and I think I need to mention it. Uh, Samuel Huntington's The Clash of Civilizations. Clash of Civilizations, right. And you have like, so the book, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so even though like I, I don't, I don't agree with him. Mm. He helped me to think about the world. Correct. Um, so I could go. I could go on and on. I mean, some of them are are probably uh, behind me here, but uh, I will say this: I'm not a big fan of fiction. Mm. Okay. I'm not a big fan of fiction at all. Like, I it's hard. I like. I can do like a historical narrative type book that's like semi fiction, but. Uh, Although 1984, to be uh, to be fair, is does fall under fiction. It 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 is it is definitely fiction. Uh, but I I like Orwell not necessarily because of um, the points that he's making at a big picture, but I like the simplicity mm. of his writing. Right. So, um, so if I had to choose one fiction book, that's what it would be. That would be the one. And there's not there's not many there's not many behind it in terms of fiction <laughs> yeah but that's just me uh, yeah absolutely yeah. Uh, i i actually happen to be a fan of his other book animal farm um you know I yes just find it to be really cleverly written and it's it's a book for its time and of course 1984. okay so professor um uh, in the uh, in uh, you know i want to be respectful of your time because we did promise that we'll cut it off we'll make a hard cut uh, after an hour so uh once again for viewers and listeners who are watching us on youtube uh, do please be sure to subscribe to the channel. Thank you for being with us all this time. And again, if you found us on Apple, uh, Google, or Spotify, do please continue to download. The book, once again, is The Humanity of Muhammad, A Christian View by Professor Dr. Craig Considine. Please go out and buy it. It's a fantastic book written by a fantastic scholar. And we really hope to have Dr. Considine back for a future episode, perhaps to talk about uh, people of the book. And uh, you know, we, we would love to you know continue this discussion and maybe have a part two as well. Uh, so Professor, uh, just one last question. If your fans and uh, readers want to stay in touch with your activities, uh, what would be the best way to do so? So I'm most active on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, I do post on YouTube. Uh, my email is readily available at the Rice University website. So I use all forms of communication. So if someone needs to reach me, they can easily find me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's that's wonderful to hear. So, Professor, uh, I just want to uh, take this opportunity to thank you once again for doing this. Um, you know, as I mentioned that uh, the, I was really worried about the internet connection just before we started the episode. It just happens we to be it. episode 13. But yeah, but I believe that you that's really right. the luck of the Irish to counteract all the bad luck that might have, uh, you know, it could have yes. been a disastrous episode. But yeah, thank you so much. I have a little, a little Irish flag here. I don't think you can see it. There it is. It says Irish. 
Okay, the Irish. So th there it is. It's hanging over, hanging over my head for us. Okay, <laughs> I was wondering if it was the tricolor or the Union Jack, you know, because of the difference between the Irish Republic and the. You know, yes, the yeah, Republic. we can have a podcast on that too if you absolutely, want. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Professor, thank you once again. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest, and I really enjoy talking to you. And I really mean what I said that I really do hope to have you back uh, for a future episode, inshallah, God willing, uh, whenever you have time on your hands. So uh, thank you once again. Omar, and thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for uh, your your continued support, your warm words, also your words of wisdom. Thank you for reaching out to Dr. Ahmed. And I look forward to future engagements with you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. And uh... You too. Thank you.